I'm Moya Andrews, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Mohammed Tarabi, who is currently serving as Dean of the IU School of Public Health. He is a long-term member of the Bloomington Academic Community. Mohammed, thank you for being here today. It's, it's an honor to be here. This has been an eventful year for your school. You've been doing all kinds of interesting things that have resulted in a name change. Tell me about this. Well, again, uh, Dean Andrew, it's an honor to be with you, and it has been an exciting year uh, for our school. And uh, just want to first say that we treasure our past, uh, but our faculty, our staff, our, and our alums embrace the future. Uh, as you know, there are actually, to the best of my knowledge, no other school of hyper left in the nation. And a school of hyper has had a glorious history, has had three distinct, highly respected academic units. Uh, but by the same token, uh, when you look around on Big Ten universities, there is no school of hypers. You know, when the academic leaders of this Big Ten university, they, uh, they have their gathering, I'm sure they talk about the school of business, the college of art and science and music. But sometimes, you know, I had to explain to people what the School of Hyper is. I mean, we really didn't have to. And it's not really nice that, you know, sometimes people refer to you as Hyper Dean. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where that boy came from. It's, a, it's been a school of health, physical education, and recreation. And this is school. Is this the only school? In the whole nation, it's the only school that has that name. Name hyper. at this time. Mm. Uh, and then, and this is the only school that was established under the visionary leadership of Chancellor Wells. And mm. so he was very proud and he was a, a frequent visitor to our schools. But time changed. A state of Indiana is among few states that does not have a school of public health. Oh, I see. So Indiana was behind the times. We are even behind. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, if you look at the surrounding state, about going back 10 years ago, Kentucky didn't have, Ohio State didn't have, University of Iowa. So, uh, and now if you, when you look around, there are just School of Public Health really uh, uh, almost every state, they are in a, either they have developed a school or they are, they have accredited School of Public Health at this time. And so some five years ago, uh, President McRobbie appointed a task force, and it was co-chaired by uh, uh, distinguished Professor Bernice Pescasolido from Bloomington Campus and former health commissioner of the state of Indiana, Judy Monroe. And I had the honor of serving on that task force to examine the need for having a school of public health. And it was under his vision and leadership that uh, we uh, we had the major ongoing deliberations and discussions, and so based on uh, looking at the data and look at what is happening in public health of the state as compared to the nation and other states, the committee, the task force, I should say, came with this conclusion that the state of Indiana is in desperate need of having a school of public health. 
But then the second phase was we believe that School of Public Health should have been in Bloomington because we have the oldest and longest accredited public health program, not the school, uh, on this campus uh, in, their, in their School of Health, Physical Education and Recreation. So the department was a strong department within the school, the, the Department of Public sure. Health, and it was accredited and the only one in the state. As a program, yes. Mm. And then, uh, and again, we were far better known outside the state of Indiana than in the state of Indiana because a lot of our graduates, whether our PhDs or, or, or MPH, they really, they got jobs from other places. By the same token, our counterparts, our and I, my dear friends, they claim that they should be in Indianapolis. And I know about some, again, uh, some, I, I should say, 15 years ago or so, when Chancellor uh, Gross Lewis appointed a uh, work with uh, Chancellor Bebko, they appointed a committee to help Indianapolis develop MPH, and I was appointed representing Bloomington campus to help Indianapolis develop Master I of Public see. Health program. Oh, so that MPH is the Master of Public Health that they offered in, in Indianapolis. Sure. And they are much, you know, much more, uh, I mean, younger program, and they have done a really good job. So the story was they had a department after the last 14, 15 years, they have a department of public health, and we have a school of health, physical education, and recreation. And, and so uh, the president and his uh, very able members of uh, cabinets made the conclusions that a state of Indiana not only need one, but also two schools of public health. So you went from, you, from none to two. We went from none to two. And being, again, uh, being honest, a state of Indiana's public health infrastructure and in terms of public health indicator of the state of Indiana is so bad that I really believe that even a state of Indiana can have more than two schools of public health, and they can they need more than two schools of public health. But this mm. is down the road. So that was that was the backgrounds that uh, started, and then it is uh, Indianapolis. And then there was one idea was having one school of public health then uh, jointly uh, be uh, uh, kind of uh, have one administrators on both campuses. And that model would not have worked and accrediting body would not allow that because in order to be accredited as a school of public health, you got to be autonomous and you got to, the dean has to have an uh, autonomous budget, autonomous curriculum and report directly uh, to the provost or, in, in case of Indianapolis, chancellor. So even that discussion of having won a school by joint a school was discussed but would not have worked because uh, we definitely... So that wasn't a viable option at all. You know, and, and so from that point on, ideally, if you want to start a new school of public health, uh, I mean, I have, I have, you know, university, obviously they're not in that position, Coming and giving, you know, $40 million and say a start from ground zero, that is a really easy thing to do. Right. You draw the right. chart. It's like building a new house. Yeah. Building a new house, you can do it according to your own specifications. Uh, but you're, you've had to renovate a house. Absolutely. We have an existing house, as you said, that's a really excellent way of putting it. And then we need to obviously develop infrastructure for becoming a school of public health. And by, by the same token, a school of hyper 
uh, which uh, really been doing public health for last seven years. Mm. We have almost 66 years of history. Uh, so we've been doing public health for a long time, but, we, but just we haven't called ourselves School of Public Health. Right. You've had a very large department of public yeah. health all those years. And also we have had, you know, again, you know, if you look at, the, you know, Department of Kinesiology, the Department of Recreation, Park and Tourism Studies, I mean, these are all about physical activities, quality of life, uh, agings, and all that. Those are all public health. As a matter of fact, the School of Health, Physical Education, Recreation, that physical education is the smallest unit that is within the old uh, within school. Within the old school. It used mm-hmm. to be a large, but it, it has really uh, it has grown into a lot of exercise science, uh, physical activity, uh, sport management. And so even the name of a school as a school of HBR was not accurate. Uh, accurately described the school as, as it existed, as it existed. in existed. the present day. Mm. And and so uh, when uh, I was uh, asked, uh, I remember in one Sunday morning, a former provost Hansen asked me uh, to move to the to this position. And you were chair of the Department of Public Health at the time, weren't you? I was chair for. Th- Eleven years. Oh, I see. Of, of Before you became interim dean, and so when when I moved there, uh, it was it was I remember it was Sunday, and then I had to start my work on Tuesday, November one. Mm. And I turned to my wife. I said, "There is this is sacrifice, and all of you part. Is that some what you else think?" They said you have no choice, and obviously I, I have. I say I say this so that it has been humbling, it has been uh, challenging, but it has been wonderful, wonderful journey for us. We I'm surrounded by some of the most competent, dedicated faculty, staff, students, alums, and also I have to say this: the leadership of university from President McRobbie and his cabinet to Vice President Marshall and especially also Provost Robel, they have been absolutely supportive of our transition. And I want to say this, there are, it hasn't been lip service. It has been true support mm-hmm. and true help and true guidance. And so, I mean, uh, I am fortunate Mm. Uh, to have the mm. opportunity to work with with uh, with these leaders and also my leadership at the at the school level, I have wonderful department chairs. Uh, in last last two years, I have hired four four department chairs, two associate deans, created the office of career service for the first time, and through uh, a lot of infrastructures being built, we added. Two new departments, one before my time, Department of Environmental Health, and uh, we added last year new Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And in order for us, those are some of the core in order to be accredited in addition to all other things we are doing. Also, we need to have some of the five core areas in Mm. public health. So you had national regulations that were guiding a lot of 
what you had to do in terms of the infrastructure. Absolutely. And uh, again, you know, as soon as, you know, we've, uh, and, I, 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 and then in order to do all of those things, first we have to get up, uh, go through faculty governance. And again, I am very much committed to shared governance. Everything we have done it has gone through faculty channels, through obviously university uh, uh, committees, board of trustees, and and also Indiana Commission for Higher Education. And especially when you go to the, uh, doing this uh, economic hardship, you know, and I, I being perfectly honest with you, last year this time, I would not, in my wildest imagination, I would not have guessed that we'd be where we are. And as we speak right now, there are apparently there's eight new schools of public health being added, uh, various states. And I have int- I have gone to D.C. and I have met with them. And I have to say this, that we are ahead of a curve because we have built infrastructure. And we have had the started self-study document that is required for accreditation. Uh, long before even we were asked. Mm. And, uh, but part of it, I just want to say this. I have been a small part of it. What has happened, it has been due to teamwork, team efforts. And, and again, as soon as we, we, our name change took place in uh, June 24th, even after, I, I'm sorry, I, I missed something to say, uh, that after Indiana Commission for higher education approved the name change. Again, we were not allowed to call ourselves the School of Public Health of Bloomington until we get approved by SEEF, uh, which is Council on Education for Public Health. That's a national body. That's a national body. And then, uh, so we submitted, uh, while uh, we submitted our proposal to them, and I believe it was June 24th, or 25th, when I, that early morning, I got the most exciting uh, email from them saying that the application is approved. That immediately informed uh, by email, president and provost and vice president, and they were excited. And after and all that work, it, it was it was a kind of things that we really didn't expect. We go the way that we did. And again, we put all the ingredients in place. I hired as soon as we became a school of public health. Uh, then, you know, I hired, a, you know, a chair of the department of APM Biostat who started this August and he walked in uh, very, you know, MD, PhD, Harvard graduate, tenured faculty in the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But a lot of planning, you know, I, I twice I went to the Raleigh North Airport, uh, flying in, flying out, having dinner with him. My second trip, the deal was signed and sealed. And he walked in with 2.3 million NIH grants. He just brought another cancer societies over half a million dollar grants. And the number of applicants now, we have some new uh, applicants for epidemiology, biostatistics, environmental health, and other areas. The number of our, our applicants is just absolutely phenomenal. Now that we say we are a school of public health. Yes, well, that's wonderful. That may be a place where we need to stop and have your first music selection. Tell me what you brought to, to, for us to hear. One of the musics that I, I brought is, the, is a Persian uh, classical music. 
and this, the singer is uh, is Shakila. Her name is Shakila, and she started singing at the age nine, and her parents were against her appearing on TVs and radios, and then they sent her back to schools and uh, music schools, and then she she has an absolutely beautiful voice. She's a classical uh, music singer in Iran. And also, she takes the most beautiful lyrics of, uh, of again, uh, from the Iran is, as you know, that uh, we have uh, this rich history of poetry. And some of them goes back to uh, 1500 years mm. ago. Mm. But the one that is one, my favorite one has to do with the, with the freedom. And this, the, the poet of for this uh, this song his name is Muhammad Taqiyah Bahar and he was labeled king of poets and he's uh, actually contemporary in a sense that for Persian when we say contemporary he was born in, uh, he was born in 1884 and he lived until 1951 and died of tuberculosis so uh, it's a public health specialist you're interested in that and so the song is bird of dawn It's a bird of dawn, and if I just may just recite part of the translation, because the reason I'm really drawn to this, and often I try to tell my kids, and occasionally in a hallway with my students, I don't take anything in a classroom, but when, when I'm asked that we are citizen here by choice, and there is one thing that we appreciate, and we do not take it for granted, the freedom we have. Mm. And this poet, this poet was a journalist, was a minister of culture. He was a professor of literature in Tehran University, where I went to school. And this is one of the, again, has to do with uh, uh, this bird, or early morning bird, you know, get out of your nest and uh, sing a song of, freedom for humanity for all humanity and it goes like flightless nightingale come out from the corner of your cage and sing humanity's song of freedom and with a single breath fill the vastness of this massive earth with flame
Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Well, Mo, this has been a very interesting discussion that you've told us all about what's happened at the school, and I'm sure that this is just another chapter in what has been a very interesting lifetime journey for you. Now, you've had a very successful academic career, and I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about how you started out, obviously in a different culture, and you were born in Iran, is that right? Yes. And tell me then how you happened to get into the field of, mm. of public health. Uh, anytime I teach cl- uh, a class, uh, the first year of class, I see a lot of nervous students with a lot of problems. I, I spend about 20 minutes sharing with them my story. And then at the end of that 20 minutes, they know that they have no problem. I, I was I've Actually, I was born in a, in a small city in a southwest of Iran near Kermanshah. And that is called Nahavan. It's a historical city. And then at five, I believe, we moved to Tehran. And so we, were, we spent most of my life in a big city, a huge city, uh, that is Tehran. And, but uh, I, I grew up in a very uh, financially poor but a spiritually rich family. Uh, we had one sister, uh, and we were four brothers. And but my dream was to get into college, be admitted to college and university. And uh, and in Iran, you know, the, it's, there's a major national exams, and there were about two percent at the time I was there. Two percent of all people who took the test were admitted to universities. And out of those two percent, very small percentage of that would be admitted to the, you know, our Harvard or Indiana University of Iran, and that is Tehran University, which is the oldest university and was established by the father of late Shah. And so I was fortunate and lucky, and also really, I I don't think I was smarter than any of my classmates. I think there is, a, I was really. I worked harder, and there was something that a Persian poet of 13th century Rumi uh, says that uh, you need to have that fire in your heart, in your belly, that you really, uh, if you, I mean, that is a must. And I really believe that I, I was inspired. I had that fire. I had that determination. There was no other thing in my life but just pursuing academic and I know that was the only chance for me to be able someday uh, to go to college and help my family. And uh, I was lucky enough to be admitted to uh, Tehran University. And so that was very prestigious. And when you're admitted, then you get full scholarship. I oh, mean, basically, that was, so that was a wonderful opportunity. But you had to work hard to earn that place. Absolutely. My, my parents wouldn't have been able to, to uh, pay for tuitions or anything else. And, and so as a classified doctorate, I got admitted. And then after I finished my undergraduate, 
then I and I was the first one from all my family. I mean, we have a large family, all cousins and uh, I mean uncles and I mean you name it, we have it. I was the first one in my entire family to get into university. That must uh, have been a wonderful thing for you. And when you admit it, it is your name is printed in a like New York Times. That is a national paper. It goes everywhere in the country. They know that who is who been admitted. Mm-hmm. And so, and then after that, I said, really, undergrad is not going to get me a research degree. I, I uh, applied for the master degree in a school of public health. And the school of public health in Iran, then the Tehran University, was the best school of public health in the Middle East. And we had a large number of international students in our program, including a student from Australia. Oh, really? So that MS. That, that School of Public Health had a numerous projects from World Health Organization. So we were working with some of the most recognized professors at the time in public health. And so then, you were in a School of Public Health many years ago. Before. You've just come full circle. Uh, absolutely. And then, uh, and then obviously, then I, as I was writing my thesis for master's degree, then I said, I don't think I have really... Uh, achieved what I want to achieve. I really want to have advanced degree. And advanced degree was dream for me was PhD and the only way for me to get a PhD from a, a good university was big, being a class valedictorian, number one students. And again, it's because of the, I, I, there's nothing else in my life but working. And fortunately, I was lucky enough that uh, I became class valedictorian, and at the time, the Shah of Iran, come during the commencement ceremony, he himself presented a diploma to the class valedictorian. It was uh, kind of again coming from a you know low income family. All of a sudden, you know, I'm I'm at Tehran University receiving diploma from a, uh, from the head of a, a country at the time, and then that. When you when you're class valedictorian, then you receive full scholarship anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world for PhD, and they give you from airfare to tuition, freedom, everything that you can imagine, a stipend, and then you go through the schools and university. And I applied for four universities. My first admission came from Purdue, and so that's the story that I said. And these are four good universities, and actually. Uh, three of the four was from uh, Big Ten. They had that kind of reputation overseas even during the time that I was in Iran. And But anyway, I, uh, I applied. The first admission came from Purdue. And I said, I go, and I, if not, then I go to the other. If that is not what I want, then I go to another university. Making a story very short, then uh, after one year, that I, all I had to do in my life Everything was paid. I had to study, compete against other PhD students, and just learn the language. And it was it was challenging because, again, you know, uh, it was not something that we learned uh, English seriously in Iran at the time. So and you came to West Lafayette, mm-hmm. not speaking English. Very little, very little. And so I had three months of it, uh, going to some intensive uh, language training, and then then I had to start, you know, PhDs uh, that we uh, compete against uh, native speakers was not uh, any a small task. But nonetheless, I really felt that it was uh, I, I had. Uh, uh, 
life was good. I missed my family. I was very close to my family. I was homesick. But nonetheless, after a year, revolution took place in Iran, and then they cut off our scholarship, and they asked us to go back. And here is all of a sudden my life turned upside down, and uh, being uh, and the hostage crisis took over, and uh, you know it was it was absolutely for us here was a mess. And you must have been worried, sick about your family. Worried, sick about them. Worried, sick about myself. How can I pay the tuition, room, and board? And then on top of that, uh, it's. Uh, if you know you have to pay out of a state tuition, your international students mm. do two two things that I couldn't work off campus and I had to pay out of a state tuition, I had to be full time, I couldn't say I can be part time, otherwise, you'd be deported. And so, during those period, uh, this is the, for two years, I my sleeping time was four hours, and I did everything ethical and legal to be able to survive pay my bill. Uh, I became house managers for an international center, so I didn't have to pay for the rent. And then from dishwashing to carrying projectors at the time, those movie projectors from mm-hmm. class to classes, or being uh, doing data analysis for professors. So for two years, I really, I don't know if I could survive, but I managed to survive. And so the at the last year, I kept going back to department chair, wonderful man, and by asked for assistantship, and they said assistantship was limited to American students, as it should be. I mean, I had no problem with that, but nonetheless, I was going through really, really serious hard, hardship. And finally, they said he he indicated that he's a nice gentleman, and he said I give you a chance to see if you wanna. And after uh, receiving that uh, assistantship for the last year. Again, life was good. I was teaching like other students, other PhD students. They were paying my tuitions and graduated with a, with a PhD in 82. And that's the time I started looking for a job. And that's also there was a new drama with that. Again, it's hostage crisis and I, my visa issues. I went for one job interview in a a small university that I just want to do it because I want to, I'm a researcher. I want to be in a research institution. I went for the job interview and as soon as I, I walk in to the dean's office, he told me that, oh, you, you sound foreigner. I said, yes, I am. And I was nervous, intimidated. Uh, and he said, I will not hire a foreigner. So the message for this is I share, share this with my classmates, with my students, with my colleagues, with with my kids, uh, the hardship is good. I really believe that that helped me to be a better person. When students or faculty walks to my office and, and tells me about some of the economic hardship, the uh, personal hardship, I don't tell them that I understand it. I feel it, and I know what you, what it is, and I try to do be part of the solution. That is an absolutely incredible story, Mo. This might be a good time for us to play your next selection by James Taylor, Shower the People. Can you tell us a little bit about this selection? Actually, there's, uh, when I was preparing to come to the U.S., the Ministry of Higher Ed for all those who were really were given, they had a scholarship heading to overseas, 
they had very short, intensive English classes and kind of um, orientation orientations. And so during that trying time, and we had a we had a teacher from a British teacher, and as she was giving us inter- uh, this orientation and some introduction to the language and all that, she played the song of a uh, James Taylor. It was I was drawn into it. I absolutely felt that there's going to be love everywhere. Doesn't matter, you know. I'm not. I'm going to be okay. And this is the kind of if this is a typical Western music, this is the story of what what the culture is. So it was inspirational for me, and it was kind of encouraging thing. And still, I believe that it's one of the most beautiful songs that is. And he has a magnificent voice and music, magnificent musician. So. That was the story, and occasionally I play that with with my kids and with with my family, and still I love to uh, listen to it. Let's hear it. You can play the game and you can act out the part, though you know it wasn't written for you. Tell me, how can you stand there with your broken heart, ashamed to play? One thing can lead to another It doesn't take any sacrifice Oh, father and mother, sister and brother If it feels nice, don't think twice Just shower the people you love Mo, this has been a really interesting year in terms of health issues nationally with the election. The future of health care in this country has been uh, discussed at length. But what does the national environment and what's happening nationally do in terms of what happens and with your plans here within this new school? Uh, that is uh, excellent questions, and it is truly exciting time in the field of public health. And I want to just say this again. I know this, the healthcare reform, it's a kind of, uh, there are people have uh, some extreme feeling one way or another. I'm just going to share with you my own personal view. I truly believe that as a, as a superpower, as the only superpower country in the world, we cannot afford not to have coverage for every single member of our society. Again, how to go about it, maybe there may be some debates. We spent more than, per capita by the way, more than any other industrial nation in the world on our healthcare system, which I described it as a disease care system because historically we have been very, we have emphasized on it, taking care of sick people. 
when you're really sick, you go to hospital, you go to emergency room when that is enormously expensive, whether it is a surgery or whether it is uh, uh, all the x-rays, all the things, the clinical work they have to do to get you back on your feet. And sometimes they can and sometimes they cannot. And so, uh, and yet we have about 50 million people before this, before the healthcare reform that had minimum coverage, no coverage at all. So they have to pay for themselves. But the reality is we pay for them. We pay heavily, actually. We spend 2.7 or $8 trillion on our healthcare costs. And I have tried to come up with this answer for my questions of what percentage of that goes toward prevention. And the best estimate I have gotten from my colleagues from federal governments or, or, or the field is less than 5% of that goes toward prevention. But think about it. One surgery, one bypass, heart bypass surgery, one lung cancer surgery cost 30, for, depends on place, forty, fifty thousand dollars but what is the cost of a smoking cessation? Again, that depends on a community. Is three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars, and they are reasonably successful in terms of a uh, kind of helping people quit smoking, which is this is public health enemy number one. And so, the cost of a mammography it could be sixty dollars, hundred dollars, versus. Uh, treating a cancer, a breast cancers. or uh, And so there is absolutely no doubt that prevention is ultimate cure. And it's not only prevention brings about, uh, saves money, but also brings about quality of life. Mm. And prevention, the problem with prevention is hard to quantify it. How in the world we can say that we have prevented an HIV AIDS infection that never took place. We can't quantify it in terms of dollars and cents. But when you go to emergency room and, you know, they do a surgery, so obviously that's easier to quantify it. So in my view, I really, again, we may have, uh, we may have all kind of issues or concern about the healthcare reform, but I really believe that eventually going to evolve as a very solid, good, uh, healthcare that 20 years, 30 years down the road, people look back and they say, we are started late for this initiative. I go a little bit one step further. I really and truly believe that healthy people is a matter of our national security. Healthy mind is in healthy body and with the unhealthy or sick people, we cannot defend our nation if we have to. So it, it has to do uh, prevention and public health has to do with the quality of life, with cost containments, with the extending of life expectancies. But having said that, prevention and public health will not replace medical care that everyone needs. We talk about premature death. We talk about preventing sickness. We are talking about preventing people from staying in bed rather than being at work. And so for all those practical reasons. By the way, the single fastest growing budget item for everybody, including universities, is our healthcare cost and our premium. And this cannot go on forever. It's going to bankrupt the nation. 
And so something fundamental needs to be done. Again, this healthcare reform may not be a perfect one, and it's going to evolve in a better one. But nonetheless, we have to start somewhere. All you have to do, look at European nations. Look at North Border Canada. And they are ahead of us with regard to public health and prevention and, uh, and their uh, kind of coverage of the people. So uh, having said that, I really believe that we're dealing with the prevention has become an important part of this healthcare mm-hmm. reform. Mm-hmm. What it has to do with us for our state, in terms of uh, I have... We, we didn't have a school of public health. In terms of public health funding, we are 49th among all 50 states because most of the funding in public health, they usually schools of public health are involved. They go after those funding. They bring it in a state. And when you don't have that public health program, then it's really... It's so you will be in a better position now, your school, to to get funding for various research projects, but also for delivery of service. Absolutely. We are in a better position. We will be even in better position when we become accredited a school of public health, and which is a matter of, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of how soon we be accredited. Because we have had a, we have had a, a successful track on accredited public health program. Now we want to have an accredited school of public health. And the, the reality is, look in terms of a leading cause of death 100 years ago with no. 100 well, years ago. The, what is the difference? A century ago, the leading cause of death was infectious communicable diseases, tuberculosis, diarrhea, and the kind of thing that only needed medical attention and hygiene. But now look at the leading cause of death of modern time. Heart disease cancer, lung disease, a stroke. And if you look at the actually, those are the leading cause of death in the U.S. and in, a, in a developed countries. And when you look at the actual causes of death for these modern killers, is tobacco is number one. Half a million people die of tobacco in this country. Physical inactivity Again, all you have to do look around and see almost two-thirds of our population either are overweight or obese, and some of them mortally obese. And Persians have a saying that obesity is mother of all illnesses. And now, I mean, you don't have to go to ancient Persian. Look at the data. Type 2 diabetes used to be a disease of uh, older people. Now is the fastest growing pandemic among children. And it is all you need to look at it. There are two factors. Inactivity, sitting, playing with TV monitor, TV and computer games and ordering fast food, be delivered to the bedroom and not moving. So poor nutrition and physical inactivities. Again, these are the things that medicine can't do anything about. It. These are have to do with prevention and public health. And, and lifestyle. Lifestyle changes. This must be, though, the most difficult thing to to deal with. How do you uh, get people who are chronically obese to change their lifestyle? They're too heavy to move. First of all, we need to go after the root of the problem. I really think that, again, our school has, that is why this school has a, can make a huge difference for health and well-being of our, our, our citizen 
not only for for our community, not only for a state, but globally. Mm -hmm. And so we need to go back to the root of the problem. The root of problem is obviously uh, through research and uh, serious research, uh, we, we can see the major causes of obesity. And again, physical inactivity is is a big, big factor. As you know that we all have a, you know, we are adjusting in a sedentary, a sedentary lifestyle and just because of the nature of our work. And then poor nutrition, as, as we all know, we are into microwaving and frozen food and fast food places, which is loaded with salt and sugar and saturated fat. And it is a lifestyle that is... Uh, so education is part of it. Mm -hmm. Research is fundamental. Education is part of it. Policy changes also in part of it. You know, for tobacco, for many years, we just saying that we educate people by still smoking. But education enough, you know, it took me seven years to, to talk, to teach our kids to brush their teeth. It's an ongoing effort. And then just educating kids, saying that brush your teeth, it's not going to do it. You have to also have access. That toothbrush and toothpaste have to be there. There has to be policy at home. Now, if you're talking about broader community, right. you have to have a smoke-free community that even you as a non-smoker not to be exposed with pay the price for somebody else who is smoking. So there's going to be a combination of research, education, policy, and investment on it. And our school has 70 years, 60, to be accurate, 66 years of uh, excellence in research, in teaching, in community engagement and public health practice, and now under broader umbrella of School of Public Health, now we have sky's the limit what we can do because now we're going to have access to external funding. We're going to have a, we don't have to explain ourselves that I, you know what is hyper. I don't have to explain what hyper stands for. And now we are just like a school of business, a school of music, a school of law. I mean, we are a major player. And you're self-explanatory. Your mm -hmm. title explains what you do. Sure. You asked me a question about our vision. Our vision is very simple. The short term and long term. The short term, we want to be accredited as a school of public health. And we have track record and we are ahead of game and we will be accredited sooner than people guess. And in the, the long term, we want to be a, we just do not want to be a mediocre school of public health. We want to be named. Hopefully, we find some potential donors to our school be named after. We want to be named. We want to be futuristic. And we want to be top-tier school of public health with the, with the mission of ultimate mission of uh, preventing disease, promoting health and quality of life for our citizen locally, nationally, and internationally. Building on the strengths of our school, again, seven decades of experience of excellence in teaching research service, and also strengths of a Bloomington campus in a various schools and departments they have done directly and indirectly public health. And whether it's informatics, whether it's psychology, whether it's sociology, whether uh, optometry and law. SPIA. Uh, SPIA, actually, our major partner with public health and 
economics department. So also, we, we, this School of Public Health is a futuristic, it's applied, it's interdisciplinary, and we are committed in working with all these well-established international recognized program to build top-tier school of public health and and so with uh, with the support and 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 leadership of our uh, our uh, our leaders in Bryan Hall and our commitment of faculty and, and state support too state support 20,000 alums out there that they I believe that through our marketing they are very aware and very supportive of our direction of a school uh, sky is the limit for what we can do for the health and well-being of our citizens. And at the end, also, we're going to contribute toward economic development because in order to have that, you have to have healthy people. Well, that sounds wonderful. It sounds as though you've been through an interesting period, but there's a much more interesting future ahead. Well, this has been very interesting to me and I'm sure to our listeners. And to end, I think you have a poem does it reflect your personal philosophy or the school philosophy? I believe it not only represents my personal philosophy, but it represents every school's of public health philosophy about prevention. Good, and let's hear it. This really says, I, I, I give you a little brief background and then I read a few verses from it. Uh, I, I mean, I cannot overemphasize the importance of prevention and in dealing with the major health crisis in our global community. And uh, health issues is not limited to the U.S., it's all over. They, uh, so I'm reminded of a magnificent poem by Joseph Melins entitled A Fence or an Ambulance. And the story, the essence of this story is uh, uh, there was a dangerous cliff with a beautiful view. Often people walk near the edge and kept slipping down, resulting in death or disability. The members of the community often talked about having more ambulances down at the bottom of the cliff. By the way, a wise man came and gave some advice, and some members of the community thought that this wise man is really out of touch with what is going on. But finally, they accepted what he says. Anyway, a wise man in the community finally spoke up, and I quote, It is a marvel to me that people give far more attention to repairing results than to stopping the cause, when they would much better aim at prevention. Let us stop at the source all this mischief, cried he. Come, neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we will fence, we might almost dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. End of quote. Our university leaders at our Indiana University, at our beloved university, have, have forged ahead with the fence over ambulance down in the valley. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Dean of the IU School of Public Health, Professor Mohammed Tarabi. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. This is Moya Andrews for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. 
information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.